get it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Pod Me If You Can. This is Pod Me If You Can. Movie reviews by David and Lloyd. An Australian podcast on your favorite movies. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Welcome to Pod Me If You Can. I'm David Farrell. And I'm Lloyd Hughes. And today we're bringing you an interview. Uh, Lloyd, I want to introduce you to Chris Parlow. And now they say to write what you know, and he has written and directed a film that seems very much based on his own experiences. If, uh, if I were to ask you, Lloyd, to write a film about what you know, what kind of film would we get out of you? It would be a martial arts boxing film, Dave. Because uh, you are into MMA and... Uh, <laughs> casually box and yeah yeah that's right and uh somebody you got cast in mind to play yourself i've got no idea (laughs) m&m i think he did a good (laughs) oh manny pacquiao yeah (laughs) uh chris parlow is a uh writer director producer and uh describes himself as a failed musician so this film lloyd it is about a character called nicholas cato uh sorry that's the actor nicholas cato he plays jamie And he's a 26-year-old musician who is out of work and down on his luck when Jamie's band breaks up and he's left with no money, no career, and no girlfriend. He teaches the piano at uh, a soul-destroying music school. Essentially, he needs to know whether to take a risk and and follow follow, follow his dreams or surrender to his newfound unhappiness and play it safe. Now, the film's called Play It Safe, and it's available on Vimeo uh, today. So uh, the details will be coming up and there's probably a link in the description of this episode on our website. But uh, what I love about this is he saw a film at the Melbourne International Film Festival in 2006 and it changed him, Lloyd. And who hasn't had that experience? He, um, he watched something that we'll get into in the interview and he, he thought, why, are, I'm not, why am I not seeing films like this being made in Melbourne? He's a Melbourne uh, filmmaker and... You know, something clicked 2006, by 2010 he was writing his own film and uh, I imagine there was about a four-year process where the film was being made. And uh, independently, of course, it's sort of fascinating because what I like about this is that somebody has literally followed their dreams in the filmmaking, so behind the scenes of the film, in order to not play it safe. He's, you know, taken a risk and made art, basically. Um, about something he knows and within the film there's also a character Nicholas Cato's playing Jamie who has that same choice so there's kind of a nice symmetry I think in life and in art and art imitating life so I I was intrigued by the premise of this also interesting Lloyd much like Kevin Smith's Clerks this is his first film and it's all in black and white well it's going to be good stuff I'll I will jump straight into the interview with Chris Parlow and uh, all the details coming up on how you can download this thing in Vimeo. Hope you guys enjoy. You're going to be 30 before you know it, and then you'll be 35, and then everyone you know is going to have solidity to their life, and you're going to be scratching your ass, looking around, wondering what happened. I've thrown everything into this band. I don't have anything else. And we went on tour, and the tour was shit, now we're broken up. So do you have any, any money in the bank at all? No. It's really frustrating because it feels like you have no idea what you want. 
What do you got coming up? What do you got planned? Something big? Write a song, do the dishes, and then begin the relationship that will take you on to the end of your life. I hope to be able to instill the passion that I have for music into the next generation. Our students are like our customers and we provide them with a service. That's why we need to stick to the curriculum. It should be fun doing this, right? Because you look bored. You don't even like your job. It's life sometimes. Yeah. You have to do things that you don't want to do. It's a big day. It's a big day. Yeah, I'm tired just thinking about it. I have to actually do it. Chris Parlo, welcome to Pod Me If You Can. David, thank you so much for having me. No problem at all. Uh, very excited about your film. I've seen the trailer and uh, it looks like a lot of fun. I mean, uh, did you have fun making it? Oh, that's a tough question. I mean, there were definitely moments of great fun and excitement, but when you work on something for almost five years, um, it's hard to say the whole thing was fun, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So yeah. It's a long no, journey. Well, it's a long process, exactly. But, so I wouldn't say fun, I would say challenging and rewarding, probably. Great. Absolutely. Uh, I just want to take you back to the beginning. Uh, in 2006, it says on the website you saw a film called Mutual Appreciation at the Melbourne International Film Festival. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not familiar with the, uh, the director of the film. How would you sort of describe this film to others? Yeah, so Mutual Appreciation was directed by a guy named Andrew Bajowski. And um, I guess you could say the film belongs to the Mumblecore movement. And he was actually, I guess, the guy who made the first Mumblecore film. Although... It's debatable. You could say these type of films exist in a lineage that goes all the way back to uh, Cassavetti's Shadows in 1959. But for those who aren't familiar with Mumblecore and haven't seen Mutual Appreciation, uh, the basic deal is that these kind of films are very naturalistic. They tend to focus on young people trying to find their way in life. Um, and I guess basically just slice of life drama, very authentic, very true, um, not the kind of overcranked Hollywood style um, dramatics you know you get from your regular films. Absolutely, and then this is definitely a slice of life coming of age story. Play it safe. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean the the phrase you're going to be thirty before you know it. There's a real stigma to sort of working things out by age thirty in this culture. It sure is. And this, again, another problem with making a film over five years. I recently just turned 30, you know, so it kind of feels like life imitating art a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. I actually said that in the introduction, which we've already recorded to uh, this interview. Oh, right. Uh, the fact that what I like about this is that it's art imitating life, you know, sort of that, you know, not necessarily autobiographical. I'm sure you've you sort of see a lot of yourself in the character. Um, you've written and directed this based on your own experiences, perhaps? Well, this is the question everyone wants to know. Is it directly based on my life? And, and no, um, it's inspired by a lot of musicians I know. One guy in particular, um, a lot of the stories he'd tell me about his kind of struggles trying to make it as a musician and trying to decide, you know, is he going to give up? Is he going to keep pushing and following his dreams? So I, I guess the plot kind of comes more from other people I know and stories I've heard, but definitely there's a, a lot of me in the film and a lot of me um, in the main character. And, and the parallels are kind of scary as I think about it, you know. It just kind of happened by accident. The main character in the film ends up becoming a music teacher, which a lot of musicians do, and I ended up uh, becoming a film teacher um, for, for a few years in university. And so, yeah, and I'm sure my parents also... <laughs> <laughs> would have preferred me to take um, maybe a more safe and secure career just like uh, the main character's parents would have. Exactly. I mean, I think that's 
that's most parents um, yeah. when people say they want to be a singer or an artist or anything that is a big leap they tend to say you know study law have something to fall back on all that sort of thing so yeah uh, you were advised to play it safe by somebody when you started making the film I'm guessing to- or if, almost everybody you know that's the funny thing like um, I, I didn't go to film school I went to art school and they really pushed kind of an avant-garde agenda and so I kind of came up in my early 20s being, I guess, feeling very rebellious and fierce and, you know, like, I don't care about the system, I'm going to do things my way, I'm going to make things happen. And so it, to me it felt natural to go out there and make an independent film, but everyone around me was like, oh, I don't know about this, you know, in Australia there's a way we have of doing things, you go and get your feature film development funding. Actually, no, before that you go and do a bunch of short films and you get a you short go to film. afters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, there's, there's the set path, you know, the kind of government and society approved path and so a few people literally told me Chris you cannot make a film like this in this country and while they were technically incorrect and at, at you know at the young age of 25 I was determined to prove them incorrect I can see why they said that because it is it is extremely difficult um, yeah there were many times I was frightened that maybe we're not going to be able to finish this movie maybe it's not going to happen so it is really really tough um, but it can be done and the most encouraging thing that's probably happened in the last few years is I've met a lot of other you know, emerging filmmakers like myself who are out there shooting low-budget features and making it happen. They come out of the woodwork, and I think the internet has really done a great job of connecting all the dots, all the people with similar interests as well. Totally, totally. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Facebook by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it is a good way to, to connect with other people doing similar stuff. Uh, so you mentioned the mumblecore movement, uh, you mentioned mutual appreciation, so Play It Safe is very much in the vein of everything being very authentic and realistic. How did you uh, try and create that atmosphere on film? Wow, I probably went overboard if you ask some of the, um, the cast and crew, but I was an utter slave to authenticity. It started uh, all the way back in development and pre-production, I interviewed uh, probably about 10 or 15 musicians in great detail trying to find out what's their, their life really like because it's not something you, you tend to see on film a lot. When I was working on the script and I would show it to different people, they'd be like, oh, you know, I enjoy it, There's, you know, some interesting stuff going on, but, you know, can't he just get a deal at the end? You know, can't he just have a hit record? And sadly, the answer is no. You know, that I just couldn't feel good about putting that film out because uh, as a young guy in my 20s playing in bands myself, you know, have so much respect and admiration for all the musicians out there and particularly the ones in the Melbourne music scene. We've got so many talented people here. And there were bands I'd listen to and hear on, you know, you know, PBS or Triple R and I'd buy their record and it's in my mind these guys have made it. And then I find out that they're actually working in cafes. You know what I mean? The the fantasy is not connected to the reality in any way. So uh, right from the start, I knew I wanted to talk to these kind of people and find out what their life is really like, what their struggles are like. So that was a big part of the writing process, um, really trying to get that right. Uh, when it came uh, time to shoot, my composer had a huge influence on the film, Nathan Liao, an incredibly talented guy, and so he would work with um, the lead actor to make sure his piano technique looked correct. Um, he trained him and actually had to teach music a little bit so the music lessons were correct. So a lot of these different things went into making it feel as real as possible. Even in terms of the production design, this is me really going over the top and nerding out. 
But when you see the, the main character's bedroom in the film, it's actually got posters from like Polyester Records and, you know, different band posters and a whole bunch of CDs and records on his table and every one of them is from a local Melbourne band. That's how kind of crazy I, I went about making it authentic. Uh, you co-wrote this with Jack White. Yes, uh, yes. Friend of yours, I'm guessing. Um, I love that he read Robert McKee's story at a young age. Uh, oh, look, to, to be fair, you're referencing his bio on the website. I, I think he may have just made that up, but he certainly read it at some point in his life, that's for sure. That's good. <laughs> it's good that he read it. So this, this took several years to write then? Uh, it was about a year of to, to get the, the script into a good shape um, where I sent it out and, and got the cast together and stuff like that. But... We we made the film in a very slow and protracted manner. So essentially, it was one year of writing and, and development, and casting, all that kind of stuff. Then we shot the movie over a, a bit over a year, just on weekends. You know, we might do a couple of weekends and take a month off and shoot a few more weekends. And so through that whole second year of production, I was writing and rewriting. Um, again and again and again, just trying to make the film as, as good as I possibly could. I guess one of the other things I really tried to do to get the performances as authentic and naturalistic as possible was working a particular style uh, with actors uh, that involved a lot of improvisation. And I, I really wanted the actors to put a lot of themselves into the role and to, to bring a lot to the table and surprise me. And so I wouldn't actually give them a script. I'd give them something uh, I'd call a scriptment, which would have some basic just, you know, description of the scene, um, but usually not all the dialogue, maybe a few lines here or there, but just kind of implying the kind of thing they might say. And then we'd get together maybe three or four uh, nights of the week at my place and we'd workshop it again and again and again. And so the scenes would greatly evolve, um, you know, over months and months. And then when the time came to actually shoot them, I would throw off the, the reins and, and really push them to, to bring the truth in each scene out as much as possible. Um, I also read that you managed to use multiple cameras, which is great, you know, to capture the, the reality of the performances. And was it tricky, though, having sort of non-professional actors or is it that sort of tie into them bringing something, you know, surprising you? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was tricky, but in terms of the actors, they absolutely loved it. It's, it's a funny thing because now I think perhaps it's a bit more accepted, uh, at least with the filmmakers I know who, who are doing these kind of small films with a lot of improvisation. And the reality is you really need to shoot multicam. Um, it's, I mean, I don't want to say there's one way to do things, but I, I feel like this is definitely the best way for these kind of films because when people are improvising, you're not necessarily going to get the same thing every take. That's the whole point, right? And so if you're shooting traditional coverage where, okay, I'll shoot you talking and we'll shoot me talking, if we're saying different things, the conversation's flowing differently, it becomes pretty much impossible to connect the different takes uh, in editing and you have a whole mess. And um, I talked to people before we started shooting who had that experience and had terrible, terrible troubles in post-production. So for me, it was no, just a... Sorry, absolutely. I, I was just going to say, I'm totally with you. Um, not only the editing, I mean, sort of uh, in Anchorman and uh, improvisational comedies, you know, they always have the multiple cameras rolling. Uh, you want to get both sides of it in case that's the take you want to use. And you want to keep that flow going as well, don't you? I mean, um, totally. the stop start of sort of shooting both sides of it can can really, I suppose, ruin the authenticity you're going for. Totally, totally. And, and you know, when you're trying to get that spontaneity through improvisation, you can't just then turn around to an actor and say, okay, that take was perfect. Let's move the cameras and I want you to do exactly the same thing another five times. You know, that's that really goes against the spirit of it. So for me, 
even though at the time I felt a bit of stigma and some people were like, oh, that's kind of a TV thing. Why are you doing that? But practically, it made sense for the way I wanted to work with actors. It actually saved a lot of time. So I didn't have to you know, spend hours and hours getting all these different shots. I could just do the setup and focus on the actors, which is what I wanted to do. And they just loved it so much, you know, the, the ability to just be in the scene and breathe and, and be in there from start to finish as opposed to, like you were saying, you know, little bits here and there that um, was so freeing and they appreciate it so much. But on the flip side, it, it does have a lot of challenges. So I wouldn't, you know, make a rule and say every filmmaker should try multicam. You know, if you're doing something really visual, it's probably not appropriate because the director is going to be standing next to the DP and, and you know, looking in the viewfinder and really trying to capture a particular image. Um, when you're working with multicam, it's really hard to do that, particularly for some of our scenes where there's a piano in the room, this reflective surface, it really limits where you can actually put the different cameras, otherwise people are going to be popping up in, you know, uh, other people's shots. So. It's a compromise, but for this film, I think it was definitely the right choice. And yeah, it made the film what it is, for sure. Do you have any idea how many days you shot for or um, total over the, the years and weekends? Yeah, <laughs> good question. I have, I have the number written down somewhere, but I think off the top of my head, it was between maybe 30 and 35, something like that, which I think, I think is pretty normal for a kind of indie film. Yeah, and I mean, this is a completely independent film low-budget filmmaking at its best, you know, nobody's getting paid, I'm assuming, and yeah. uh, do people just pause their lives? How, how, was you, how did you find scheduling, I suppose? Oh, that was one of the biggest challenges, for sure, you know, because the normal way you make a movie is you say, okay, everybody, we're going to shoot this whole film in six weeks, book out your time, let's do this. And in retrospect, I really wish we could have done that. But when you're not paying people because you're working on this micro-budget level, um, you can't really turn to someone and say, hey, look, I know you've got a job and you've got to pay rent and all that kind of stuff, but just forget all that and, and do my movie. Like, it's just not practical. It, additionally, our lead actor was still at acting school at the time, and so he can't just take you know, six weeks or eight weeks off his university degree. He's going to get kicked out. Um, so when you're trying to schedule a production and you're not paying people and it's over such a long period of time, it becomes very, very difficult. And so... We tried to be smart about it. You know, we would shoot in blocks to say, okay, uh, for this particular actor, we're going to shoot all your scenes over these, you know, six weeks, you know, on the weekends, and then you're done. You can forget about it. Um, and so really it was just Nick, you know, the lead actor who had to stay there for the entire time. And the poor guy ended up with the same hairstyle for about uh, three years, unfortunately. Um, and, he, yeah, he got his hair uh, almost shaved as soon as it was finished. He cut it very short after it. I don't blame him. Yeah, well, you can't do reshoots now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so that, that was part of the problem. So we shot the whole film over a year and then I spent about a year kind of getting the cut in shape with my editor, Rachel. And looking at it, I was like, okay, there's a bunch of moments I kind of wouldn't mind reshooting or I want to add a little moment here. So, yeah, he had to come back like a year later pretty much and get that hairstyle back in action. But we took a lot of photos, a lot of references to make sure we could get him all matching. And I think we pulled it off okay. Lena Dunham, Duplass Brothers, Richard Linklater. I really enjoyed these as your inspirations. The, the Duplass Brothers, uh, The Puffy Chair. I'm trying to think of that film uh, which Mark Duplass is in with um, Peggy from Mad Men. Have you seen that one? Yes. Is this... Uh, oh, the name's on the tip of my tongue. I know the one you made. Yeah. Mean. Same as well, yeah. And uh, Richard Linklater, I mean, Boyhood, you must have checked that out. 
Oh, I, f- I feel really ashamed, but I actually haven't watched it yet. Cause I, I think it came out when I was like right in the middle of a very intense post-production. And I was like, I just can't deal with a three-hour movie right now. And I just haven't, <laughs> haven't gone back to watch it. So I feel like a, I feel very ashamed of myself now, but I will go and watch it eventually. But I'm a huge, otherwise I'm a huge Linklater fan. He was very inspirational um, on this film and on my career so far. The one, the one I love is the film I'm thinking of. Yes. I just uh, had to look it up. Just that was yeah. going to bother me. So uh, put me on the set. You know, uh, what's the hardest thing about directing a feature? You've done uh, music videos. You've done shorts. What's different about the feature film experience for you? Mm, wow, so many things. For me, with Play It Safe, I'd say the hardest thing about directing was trying to produce at the same time which is just a mammoth task. And so the reality of of stepping onto set, you know, my mind is going to be racing. It's full of spreadsheets and emails and phone calls and all the logistical things I've been dealing about in the days and weeks leading up to this one day of shooting. And then the, the actors get there and then I'm like, oh, wait, I'm the director of this thing. And your brain has to kind of shift gears, if that makes sense. Um, so I'm kind of dreaming the fantasy would be if I ever, you know, am lucky enough to make another film, actually having the kind of proper filmmaking machine behind me and like a, another producer and, you know, the whole team. So that way I can just kind of focus on the actors. Um, yeah, and, and ter- the task of directing, of course. Yeah. I mean, I was super lucky. My cast was incredible. And I guess the one good thing about shooting over such a long period of time is that we had um, so much time to rehearse and workshop. And so I guess a lot of my hard work in terms of directing had already been done. You know, the actors knew their characters so well. Um, They knew what I wanted from the scene. And so honestly, this is the real truth, uh, when I stepped on set and could shut off all those other parts of my brain and just focus on the directing, those were by far the best parts of the production. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Have you seen the film once? Once, I have, yes. Yeah, about the buskers. I mean, that's what came to mind when I was sort of looking at this film, Play It Safe, you know, getting that kind of uh, grassroots level of a musician. And um, I suppose, you know, obviously very different story and everything, but that's what popped into my head. So I wondered if you were inspired at all by Once or even Hustle and Flow, you know, somebody trying to make it in the music world. Were there sort of music movies that uh, Mm. you looked at? Well, so Mutual Appreciation is another music movie. It follows a guitarist in New York. And so I guess you could say this is really my homage to that film. Hustle and Flow, I still haven't seen, although I want to see it. Um, And once, I only saw that, I'm pretty sure, after we'd already finished shooting or quite a way into it. Uh, And I can definitely see what you're saying, that, you know, they both have this grassroots, low-budget kind of initiative behind them. But they're they're definitely very different films. It's, it, I guess it's hard for me, you know, I feel so disconnected from the movie even though I made it. Like, I don't know what people are going to make of it. And so, you know, you're talking about Lena Dunham and the Duplass brothers and Richard Linklater. They inspired me, but maybe someone will watch Play It Safe and they'll think it's a completely different direction. So I'm, I'm really curious to see what other people make of it, I guess. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's going to be an interesting time. Um, there's sort of once it's all done, the editing's finished, you've locked it off, it's out there and... That's your calling card, I suppose. Um, so, nerves? <laughs> Do you have nerves about the whole uh, launch, I guess? Oh, actually, not at the moment. I had heaps and heaps of nerves when we did the um, theatrical run. 
that, that, that was the, probably the strangest uh, two weeks of my entire life, you know. Like, I can't, it kind of just finished and I collapsed in a heap because um, I, was, I was at the cinema every day, like, introducing the movie. So that was very, very surreal. So I, I think I've got it out of my system and now I'm just happy that it's finally going to be out in the world and I can stop, I guess, taking care of it like a little baby and just let it grow up and, and do what it wants to do. Uh, tell us about your decision to shoot in black and white also. I mean... Kevin Smith famously shot mm. Clerks in black and white, his first feature film as well. Uh, yes. You had a reason behind it, though? I have a lot of reasons. And actually, speaking of Clerks, that kind, of, kind of ties into, I think, my perspectives going back to Linklater and um, the rest of the Mumblecore guys and Leonard Dunham. When I was looking for inspiration, it wasn't really for story. It was more in terms of how they, how they approached filmmaking itself. And so... I, you know, got all these DVDs, I, you know, bought it from Amazon in America, as many little indie films as I could, and I would just watch the director's commentaries again and again and again, you know. So a film like Hump Day, for example, which also has Mark Duplass in one of the lead roles, I, I watched that commentary maybe four times. Um, Primer, uh, I don't know if you've seen that, um, an amazing indie sci-fi film. The story couldn't be further away from what I'm doing, Play It Safe, but just the way um, Shane Carruth made that film was so inspirational. And so I watched that, that director's commentary probably five or six times, just really trying to, you know, take in as much as I could. And so Clerks is, is kind of, a, you know, another touchstone, you know, such um, an incredible piece of indie filmmaking history. And so the decision to go black and white for Play It Safe was actually partly inspired by Clerks on the logistical side. I don't want to get too too technical and, and too nerdy here, but essentially shooting black and white made it you know cheaper and more efficient to make play it safe because you don't have to worry about the colours of, of various lights. So in film, you, you know you have tungsten lights which are kind of a bit more orange, and then you have daylight which is a bit more blue, and and your lights in the house might be a bit more green, and so it can look really really ugly if you're mixing all these different colour temperatures if you're shooting a film in colour, you know. So either you put up with an ugly image, which no director really wants to do, or you're going to go and spend a lot of time like taking lights out and putting more lights in and you know fixing everything up. Um, it's expensive and it's time-consuming, whereas when you're shooting in black and white, everything just becomes shades of grey, so you don't have to worry about that. So we didn't need to rent a lot of really expensive film lights. We didn't have to spend as much time fiddling with them. So there was that kind of practical component, uh, which made things a little bit easier. But it's, I guess it comes from more of a philosophical place, on the one hand, I'm trying to create something which is very naturalistic and authentic, you know. Like, I wanted to, I guess, make my version of what it's like living in Australia in your 20s, which is something I feel like I hadn't really seen done in an Australian cinema before. And so I wanted the characters to feel real. I wanted them to talk like the kind of people you could meet out in the street. Um, but at the same time, film isn't reality, okay. This is something I'm constructing. Uh, it's totally artificial. So the black and white provides a little bit of, I guess, a separation, a bit of an acknowledgement that this is um, something constructed and fictitious. And I, I think I also kind of wanted to shock the audience a little bit right at the start because, again, this isn't the kind of film people may be used to seeing in the cinema. You know, it's not that really slick Hollywood feel. Like I deliberately left mistakes in the film. I deliberately wanted there to be tangents and little parts which don't tie in to the overall story and all that kind of stuff. And so I didn't want the audience to watch the whole film and then be like, oh, what, what the hell, I, you know, I feel unsettled. I wanted, I guess, to shock them right at the start and say, this is not the kind of film you're used to watching, accept it on its own terms. Um, and, and I guess also put it in a bit of film history. So going back, like I mentioned earlier, Cassavetti's Shadows, 
some of the mumblecore films, uh, shot in black and white, you know, Clerks. Uh, I guess I wanted to say I'm trying to make a film that's not the mainstream that exists in this other continuum, this other path of film history. I, I feel like such a wanker saying all that. <laughs> but that's, that's the truth. I thought about it a lot. And I also just think black and white looks beautiful. It's one of my you know, no, favorite ways to see the world. Yeah, and also, I mean, if you think about it, it's black and white in that also he has two choices. He can pursue his music career or the playing and safe option. So he, he's totally. in a choice as well there. What uh, what Melbourne landmarks can we look out for in the film? <sighs> I don't want to give any spoilers. Not not too many. There's there's a little bit around the city in Flinders Street Station and um, close to the VCA. But really, for me, it was more just trying to, I guess, set up what it feels like to be in Melbourne. Most of the film is actually uh, interiors. So it's been interesting and relieving to hear people who've seen the film say it feels so Melbourne because for a while I was kind of worried, well, so much of it takes place indoors, maybe it could be anywhere. But um, it's more like, you know, some streets in Camberwell, some streets in Brunswick, just kind of, yeah, all over the place. No, no real specific landmarks. I noticed that on the website you can purchase the T-shirts that have been worn in the film by a certain character. <laughs> Do you want to tell me about that? Yeah. Well, th- this is actually... I'm more excited about this than the release of the movie in a way. Um, this this is some ridiculous idea I had, you know, four years ago. Alistair Trombley Virtual, he's a, a wonderful Melbourne comic and he plays the protagonist's best friend. And uh, as I kind of hoped, he is definitely the crowd favourite. Even people who've hated the film are like, oh, but that guy, he was hilarious, you know. He's, he's just got a lot of heart, very, very funny kind of character. And so in pre-production, I kind of thought this is such a wacky character. It would kind of be funny to give him his own style of dress. And so all the T-shirts he wears in the film are actually creations um, specific, either specific to this film or a couple of them are actually like T-shirts I'd used in, in previous films I'd made that had been designed for that. And so I guess the fantasy was that this guy, he's going to be like a cult icon and people are going to want to buy his shirts. Um, and we'll see if anyone actually wants to buy them. Who knows? Well, this is the thing. I mean, probably Kevin Smith wouldn't have thought Jay and Silent Bob would take off in the way that they have. You know, it's, it's good to have something iconic in there. Yeah, and I think, you know... I try not to take things too seriously sometimes because filmmaking is such an arduous task. You know, there's just so much effort and thought that has to go into every little thing. Um, So as much as possible, I try and relax and be playful and, you know, just be silly, you know. Like, I, I think that's what I love about working with actors so much and also working with other writers because all the walls fall down and it's just really being a kid, you know, playing throwing ideas around, not filtering yourself. And so for me, those are the parts of filmmaking which can be most rewarding and can also get the best results. And so as much as possible, I try to just do silly little things to keep myself amused and to keep the cast and crew amused. And, yeah, that was one of them. Um, so, yeah, please buy a shirt <laughs> if you like the film and you, and you like this character. We'll see what happens. A friend of mine was on uh, the Australian version of Project Greenlight as part of the competition rounds, they didn't immediately pick a winner and then film them making their dream feature film. Uh, as part of the competition rounds, they had to make short films. He approached Bud Tingwell when he was alive and, and asked him to be in a short film, and he said yes, and it was as simple as just asking, really. Uh, obviously, a fee and everything came into it, but uh, you have Clayton Jacobson of uh, Kenny fame in this film, so um, was it as simple as asking him or...? 
Well, I, I got lucky because I've been friends with Clay for, I don't know, more than 20 years um, probably and he's been a, a mentor to me for about the last 10 years. He's really given me a lot of help and inspiration um, you know, in my career so far. Um, but he's also a very, very busy guy. So it wasn't quite as simple as just asking him. I asked him for about a year <laughs> and then finally he's like, okay, I've got one day. Uh, and we shot it. But after that in post-production, he was such a massive help. You know, he watched a lot of the cuts of the film and gave me amazing advice in, in really refining the film and making it so much better. But he's, yeah, he's a fantastic guy, such a generous soul, and he's just got so much knowledge and so much talent. You know, I felt very lucky to have his help on this project. And uh, the special edition, When People Buy It, has a commentary track with uh, you and Clayton talking. So mm. how did you find recording that as, you know, your first experience with an audio commentary? You know, was it difficult to come up with material to talk about or easy? It was horrible. I, <laughs> it was awful. I, it was fun doing it with Clay because um, we have a podcast together. It's on a bit of a hiatus, but for about a year we were doing episodes every couple of weeks. It was called The Movie Pack where we just talked to other filmmakers. And so, yeah, I felt very comfortable talking with him. But I, I think I felt a lot of pressure, you know, so many things I have to say, so many things I have to get out. And it was also recorded so many years after a lot of this stuff had happened. So, I don't know. I think it turned out okay. But there were a few moments where we'd stop the recording. I was like, oh, no, I said the complete wrong thing there. That's not at all how it happened. But I, I, people, the people who've heard it so far seem to be enjoying it. So, hopefully, I put some good tidbits in there for other indie filmmakers. Um, they can learn from my mistakes and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the Melbourne music scene obviously features a lot in this film, and I, I'm a very uncool person, so I don't know any of them, but I'll let you talk about the <laughs> bands and just uh, tell people who's in the film and, you know, how you selected them. Yeah, wow. So there's so many musicians um, in the film. I think we have over 20 artists. It's, it's pretty crazy. So, of course, there's Nathan Liao, who I mentioned before. He's the composer and in a lot of ways inspired the whole film. Um, and, and so he plays any music that the protagonist plays and he wrote the songs that the, the fictional band in the film play uh, alongside Mantra, who's an amazing rapper based in Melbourne who I've been a fan of for many, many years. And so got Mantra on board to work on the soundtrack, but he also appears um, in the film, uh, you know, not, not as himself, but as a character. So th those two were really instrumental um, in, in kind of some of the core pieces of music. But in addition to that, I really wanted to paint a very diverse picture. That's one of the things I love about the Melbourne scene. You know, you could go to a jazz bar and, and you know, watch a trio perform and then next door there might be an indie rock band and down the street there might be, you know, a couple of DJs playing house. You know, who knows? There's so much going on. And so uh, we've got some wonderful original music from the Elburn guys, which are some local hip-hop producers. They, they gave us a couple of tracks which were fantastic. Got some, some jazz from Aaron Chulai, an incredibly talented pianist uh, and producer. Some kind of indie folk from a good friend of mine, Gus Rigby. Uh, a track by Big Scary, one of my favorite local artists. Um, this, yeah, the list just goes on and on and on. And so if, if you're interested in what's going on in the Melbourne music scene over the last few years, uh, there's a lot of good stuff. You know, there are the guys like Big Scary who have a little bit of a platform, but there's also some dudes who are still up and coming and they're just creating great music. And I'm, I'm just hoping that it's going to get them to a wider audience because they're doing fantastic stuff. Yes, and thank you for giving me the official soundtrack. I will get around to it. It's on my iPod now. But, um, awesome. I, I can't say I'm familiar with the names of the bands. Um, I'm very much looking forward to learning all about them, though. Awesome. Well, that, that'd be great. Yeah, definitely. In one of the interviews on the website, it says... 
I'd love to have a career like that where each project is something completely different and challenging. So my final question for you is what is next on your agenda? Oh God. <laughs> Can you talk about it or you got yeah. something percolating? Well, I, I, yeah, no, I, I've got things percolating. It's just kind of funny. Like um, I think over a year ago, uh, I gave a couple of interviews and I mentioned a specific project that, you know, I thought was going to be my next one. And, you know, there's guys like Kanye West, they're like, oh, my album's going to be called this or it's going to be called that. And, you know, it's just going to keep changing and changing. And I hate that. And I fell into that that trap myself. So I don't think I can say for sure um, what, what my next project is going to be. Um, I, I know how fickle the film business can be, but I know I, I can say a few things. I finished a script or a draft of a script um, I've been working on with Jamie Brown, who is one of the guys who wrote The Mule, which was out, I think, about yeah. over a year Angus, ago. Angus uh, Sampson, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and he's an amazing writer and super talented, so I had an, a great time writing with him. So we're going to keep working on that, and we have a bunch of other ideas for features and also some TV stuff that we're developing. Got, uh, you know, got a few other kind of TV piloty ideas I'm working on. And so I, I, at the moment, I'm just kind of happy to be, to be busy and working with exciting people. And, and I guess like the quote said, doing a whole bunch of different stuff. I don't know what I'm going to direct next, but I'm just really enjoying development at the moment. Yeah. And it sounds like you like writing as part of a team as well. Um, is that a yeah. preference to writing on your own? Totally. I mean... The people who can write on their own, I have so much respect and admiration. I just can't do it, you know. Like, it's just so much better for me to bounce ideas off. I think it's the same same feeling I get when working with actors, you know. Like, I might suggest something and then they'll do something even better. They'll surprise me. And, and the same thing with writing, you know. I might have a really good idea for this scene, but then the next one I might be stumped. And, you know, I could sit there stressing and freaking out for the whole day trying to figure it out. But if you've got someone else who's really smart and talented and, you know, with the same vision as you, they're probably going to throw out a great idea, you know. So when I'm stuck, they're going to have something. When they're stuck, I'm going to have something. Um, and, again, it just comes back to fun, you know. Like so much of, of directing and producing uh, is really isolating, you know. Like when I meet people at parties and they're like, oh, you know, you directed a movie, that must be amazing, you must have been living the dream. I mean, like... Yes, there were some moments, but 90% of the time, just me sitting alone in my spare room at home, you know, on my computer, working really, really hard, you know, like sometimes wishing I could be out hanging out with my friends or being more social. So to have a creative partner that you can have a friendship and have fun with as well as do amazing work, that's, yeah, that's the dream. I love it so much. Fantastic. Um, I'm glad you had a rewarding experience making the film. Congratulations on completing your first feature film. A lot of people would give it up or, uh, you know, struggle with the uh, difficult second second album, I suppose you can call it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I hope we uh, see more from you and it sounds like things are percolating, as you said. Listeners, it's www.playitsafemovie.com. You can find the link to the Vimeo there or in the description of uh, this podcast on uh, www.podmeifyoucan.com and uh, this is being released to coincide with the release on Vimeo so it's out right now you guys can check it out right away the trailer's there there's a standard edition there's renting there's a special edition as I mentioned uh, Clayton Jacobson is on the audio commentary track there so uh, you guys can listen to that see if it sounds as awkward as uh, Chris makes it out (laughs) I'm not doing a very good job of selling it, am I? Actually, it's the best commentary ever. You've got to get it. I mean, uh, you know, you've got to listen to it. And if you want those deleted extended scenes, behind-the-scenes interviews, 
And it sounds like a Q&A from the world premiere. Yeah. Also, like, like I said, I was trying to take inspiration from all the other commentaries and stuff that I watch and they helped me. So I was trying to, I guess, give back and give as much materials as possible. So if someone else wants to make an indie film, they can kind of learn from how we did it, I guess. Absolutely. And I hope they do. And then uh, get in touch with us, guys. Let us know what you thought of the film. I'm looking forward to checking it out, mate. I'm going to go check it out now. And uh, you're off to rent Boyhood, I'm assuming? Yes. That's my task <laughs> for the night. Very good. All right, thanks very much for your time. You've been very generous and looking forward to seeing what you do next. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Pod me if you can. Movie reviews. 